0: welcome to the vaccination station my name is dave and today i'm interviewing rachel alter rachel thank you for coming along
1: hi thanks for having me
0: Let's start by getting to know you. Tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting.
1: All right, well, first I have lived in, I think four countries that are not the US. So I've lived in New Zealand and um, Spain and the UK and Israel most recently, um, which has been fun and interesting experience. Um, let's see, I have a dog named Charles Dogwin um, his middle name is Barcomedes, Charles Barcomedes Dogwin, but we call him Charlie. And when I was in college, I was really interested in rock climbing and ice climbing and all of those extreme sports. Um, I'm still interested in them, but I don't do them as often
0: anymore. Two questions then, what led you to these different countries and when do you go ice climbing?
1: <laughs> so New Zealand was about half a year in 2012. I, I was really interested in being outside and all of the outdoor activities. So know naturally, you go to New Zealand for that. Um, and it was incredible. I wouldn't exchange that experience for anything. I'd go back in a heartbeat, especially these days. Um, and let's see, then in Spain, I was there for a couple of months doing research for part of my master's looking um, at I was looking at um, congenital heart defects associated with living in a region of Spain that's known for their um, year-round agriculture and their greenhouses. Um, So there's this little part of Spain that is, you can actually see it from space they've got these like giant greenhouses all over and it looks white from space because they're all made of plastic Um, but that means they have um pesticides all year round and people are living really close to them so there was some concern that there might be a lot of health issues around that so i was looking at the epidemiology of that which was another great learning experience and i I speak spanish reasonably well but not fluently i was really hoping to be to london for what i expected to be a year Um, And I was doing some research in vaccine worlds. I was working at the Vaccine Confidence Project, which was wonderful. I'm still, uh, I still do some work with them. But uh, about two months in, I got into medical school and then had to move straight to Tel Aviv, where I was most recently. I've been back in New Jersey since March because of the pandemic but all of my stuff is still over in Tel Aviv. Oh, and the ice climbing, where do you go ice climbing? (laughs) I went to college in central New York, about four hours north of New York City, and it is gorgeous up there. Uh, It's also about four hours away from the high peaks of the Adirondack mountain range, which is unbelievable. If you ever have a chance to go, you gotta go there. But anyway, so there's a lot of, you know, these really beautiful tall granite cliffs and you know, a lot of people up there, kind of the crunchy type and, and do a lot of outdoors activities. And I was very lucky to go to a university that had a very you know, booming outdoors club. Um, so I, I got a lot of really great experiences from that.
0: So you're currently doing remote learning via Israel?
1: I, yes. Uh, Yeah, so I have this joke that I'm learning. I'm literally learning medicine from my parents' basement. I was, I guess, literally until more recently. Um, I've now kind of migrated upstairs to my bedroom, but our internet connection is not so great in the basement. But for a while I was sitting down there. Yeah, I've been remote since the end of March. And I don't have any plans to go back anytime soon with the way that both the U.S. and Israel are handling things.
0: So where did you study and what are your current qualifications?
1: So I got my undergraduate degree um, at Colgate University, which is again about four hours north of New York City in this little tiny town called Hamilton Park. It's beautiful up there. Um, so I say a lot of cows. Um, and I studied neuroscience and writing. Neuroscience was fantastic, but oof, was it hard? Very, very, very hard. Um, but I loved it. Writing was more just for fun. I, writing is my hobby. I just, I find it just kind of, it's just a fun thing that I do. Um, And I thought, you know, when I'm done with neuro for the day, it's nice to go back and have an assignment. That's just a fun thing to do. So anyway, that was my kind of communications intro into communications. It was more of a writing and rhetoric degree. So then I spent, let's see, I graduated in 2013, and I spent a bunch of years all over the place. I always knew I wanted to go to med school, but I hadn't taken all of the prerequisite, pre-medical requirements in undergrad, so I needed to do a post-bac degree. Um, So I took a year or two off between um, graduating undergrad and starting the post-bac, which I then started at Columbia, and did that for a couple of years, and then during the glider, they call it, when you're applying to medical school, I ended up doing my master's at the Columbia Medical Center in public health, and that was a wonderful experience. I am so, so, so happy that I, I ended up doing that. Um, it was really a kind of, I don't know if I'd call it a career change. It was a career changer. Yeah, it was a career changer. It totally changed my trajectory, and I'm still, I love neuro. I'm still so into the brain and such a brain nerd, but I've also kind of developed this passion for infectious disease that has been so timely lately. Um, but it's also just, I love it. It's so interesting.
0: So you haven't sp- chosen to specialize in anything just yet, but you've got two options available, pretty much do you, neurology and infectious diseases.
1: Yeah, so I am just starting my second year of medicine now, so I have a little time before I need to decide what my what my residency will be, my specialty. But I have some thoughts. Um, I do go back and forth between neurology. I, I have a I spent a number of years working with a neurosurgeon, and I love neurosurgery. Um, so I go back and forth between those. But I also love infectious disease. I just I think that it's fascinating. I'm, I'm good at it. You know. I really like it. Then I also think that my my personality fits really well with emergency medicine, for a year or you know, summer months or whatever it is. I would love to do N um, S F or Doctors Without Borders, wherever that ends up being. I, I, for a while, I thought it good work on polio eradication. Although with the news that polio has now been eliminated from another country, it's looking like my the, my options are not places my family really wants me to go so maybe not that one but i'd really love to work on ebola um, or maybe with refugees so i'm I'm interested in in keeping my options open but i i I have a lot of
0: interests okay so how did you first become interested in medicine as a career Mm
1: -hmm. i'm not supposed to say this but since i'm already in medical school i can it started when i was you can't see it now but When I was 12, and I saw um, the show House for the first time, yeah, (laughs) and actually my entire bedroom door, you know, teenage girls will have movie stars over their beds, and all of these, you know, hot actors, whatever, my whole bedroom door, I kid you not, is just pictures of House, (laughs) Um, but so, you know, I was 12 or so, and I saw that show, and I thought it was just fascinating, I loved the biology, I loved... Um, I love the puzzle and obviously as I got older and like looked more into it and learns more about how medicine worked, I realized it's not how it works at all. And I recently rewatched a bunch of episodes and realized, wow, this is so inaccurate, but that's what got my initial, my initial interest, piqued my interest initially. I started reading a ton of books about medicine and, you know, I, every every weekend, the New York Times magazine would have their um, diagnosis section that I would I'd rip out of the magazine and put into a binder and you know, I who knows where that is now, but I got really interested in that. I started you know, I did some shadowing at hospitals with different doctors when I was in high school. I, I got really interested in you know, shadowing a neurosurgeon when I was in college, and then past college. And then my master's really got me interested in infectious disease, which has been such a a well-timed pursuit.
0: (laughs) What advice would you give to someone considering a career in medicine?
1: A couple of things. One thing I've been really, really vocal about to people who ask me lately is I beg you, do not go straight from undergrad to med school. Please, please, please take at least a year, if not two or three or four years to, for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, I think that being a little bit older in medical school gives you more, more maturity that I think is really important when dealing with patients and when learning about a lot of these diseases, I think that it makes you a more interesting applicant but also a classmate and just person. I think that it makes you, uh, people often burn out, right? students burn out right after college. So I think for your mental health, it's really important yep. to be able to work a little bit or travel or whatever it is that you can take a little bit of time off after college. And doing anything, um, you know, working in a lab. I worked in an investment bank for a little while. I knew that's not where I wanted to be, but it, it came upon me and I did it and it was a nice little break. Um, I think also being able to work after college gives you a really different appreciation for the type, different types of people. Like we we talk about, you know, growing up in the bubble. There was, for my university, it was the Colgate bubble where we, lit, we I had a very there was a very specific type of person who went to my university and who I grew up with. And after I got out, I really hadn't seen a lot of, you know, haven't spent a lot of time with people who are different from me. And I think that going straight to medical school kind of extends that bubble past a place to a point where you don't wanna be in that bubble. Like I wanted to be around people who were different from me, who had lived in different places, whose politics were different, whose backgrounds were different, whatever. Um, And I think that just makes you a more well-rounded, more interesting person and better for your patients and for your colleagues and yourself overall. Um, So that's something I really encourage people. I also think it's really important to be passionate about something. And if you are interested in something, follow it. Um, and see where it takes you because it can take you in so many different routes and it doesn't have to be medicine. It can be research, it can be communication, it can be whatever it is. If you're going to medicine, no, it's hard. It's really, really, really hard. And if if your passion's not there, I don't think it's worth it. So you have to know this is what you want.
0: On the subject of research, do you have any current research ongoing? And if so, what is it?
1: I'm an affiliate researcher with the Vaccine Confidence Project in London. I am a full-time student, so I don't really have time to be part of a full-time project right now, but um, as part of the Vaccine Confidence Project, I do track a lot of vocal anti-vaccine activists online on social media, and I will call attention to things that I see, rumors that I see starting, or trends that I think are going to become big Or, you know, if something happens in politics that I see and I say, oh my God, they're going to latch onto this, tell the people at the Vaccine Competence Project to keep an eye on this and to track it so that we know if it becomes a big problem that needs to be addressed. So I do a lot of that right now. Um, And I guess we'll talk about this later, but I work with the March for Science and our current project right now is to be getting people, as many people as possible, out voting. I'm voting for science. So I do a lot of... You know cheerleading go vote get your vote out get your ballot i actually just sent my ballot out today Um, but i do a lot of that and a lot of policy pushing as well where i you know i write op-eds and i encourage people to communicate with their legislators to push for um pro-science policy
0: so how did you get into science communication
1: So my undergrad was I had that degree in writing and rhetoric, it was something I was always really, really interested in, and loved doing and writing was always something that I've been good at. I think that I really enjoyed making difficult concepts accessible to more people. So when I was doing my, my master's, I kind of gravitated towards classes that were, you know, on the policy and infectious disease, you know, I was kind of split between infectious disease and policy, and I got really interested in um, talking to anti-vaxxers at one point, I, you know, I was kind of just experimenting, playing around with some of the online forums to see so what kind of conversations would come up and I didn't really have any goals in mind but I thought know, this could be fun so it became a game of how long can I engage with these people before they block me which a lot of us know you know happens quite frequently and I started developing these strategies for having conversations with people that you know, would last longer and longer and longer and reach more people so that, you know, more of the audience could see what I was doing. And, you know, maybe if I got blocked, at least it would have reached somebody. So I got really involved that way. Eventually it became like a thing I was doing all the time. And I happened to be in a class, uh, infectious disease epidemiology class at the time. And we had a guest speaker, like the, um, the communications director for the school come and talk to us and I mentioned that I was doing this thing with Angie Baxter's and he wanted me to write up a, a story about what I was doing. Um, so I did through our school's blog and um, from there I kind of just, you know, people started reaching out. I got a lot more involved in the community itself, the, the, the pro-vaccine, pro-science medical community, infectious, the infectious disease people, I call it vaccine world. And I, you know, at one point, I wrote an article um, for the New York Daily News and wanted um, March for Science, I know is a, has a big voice and, and has a big following, and I wanted them to post the article so that more people could see it. And the person who runs March for Science was actually somebody who worked at Columbia when I was there. So we were able to get in touch and I became part of that team and it's been A really great tool for teaching people about infectious disease and vaccination and how to talk to people Who might be hesitant about vaccines or whatever. I've been given this amazing platform that I'm trying to take advantage of while I can.
0: So now that social media has become the major battleground for the vaccination issue, how has social media affected the way you communicate your knowledge and ideas?
1: It's kind of shifted and I will tell you if Facebook disappeared yesterday, I would not be so sad. The only reason I really keep Facebook at this point is for vaccine conversations and because at this point a lot of my network is through Facebook, um, like a lot of my colleagues are, or you know, I connect with them through Facebook. But I think that we can talk about Twitter. I've become a lot more active on Twitter lately and it's really, really hard to have a Com- a long conversation with people in 180 or 280 characters, whatever you're given, I think it's a lot. And we all know it's all just sound bites, and that I think can be really misleading and really dangerous. And I think that this pandemic has shown us the real problem with allowing sound bites to dictate policy. I think that because these platforms allows more the democratization of science where everybody has a voice and you don't actually have to be an expert and you can lie about your credentials is we've seen a lot of people, a lot of, you know, prominent voices in the community will exaggerate their credentials or will, will say that they're, they, you know, they're experts in areas that they're not, but they have followings. And it's really hard to express good science through Twitter. Um, Some people have done a really amazing job with it. Um, And I try to amplify those people through March for Science. But I think that a really big problem is that so, so many people have a voice now, it's really hard to tell what's legitimate versus what is something you need to be looking at a second time and saying, maybe this isn't so good.
0: Yeah the soundbite problem is a really difficult issue because as I found when I created the vaccination station the difficult thing is you sometimes have to communicate reasonably complex ideas within a very short time frame or, or word allocation and that's why I started creating infographics it's taken me a while to uh, to get used to the, the best format or what I, I feel is the best format for me and I've had a couple of hits and misses along the way but it really dawned on me that in an era where social media dominates and people want instant answers and instant gratification mm-hmm. the trick is to produce something that's punchy and readable and coherent to a layperson. I'm a layperson. I have no background in in science or medicine or or vaccinations. I've got no professional qualifications there. So I thought if if I can make it understandable to, to me, just a, a regular dab, then it, it should be understandable to, to most people. So that's what I've tried to do. So you, you mentioned earlier that you work with the March for Science. What is the March for Science and, and what's your role in it?
1: Yeah, so I don't know how much background you know, but so March for Science began kind of as an off, she- well, they're not affiliated with, but after the election in 2016, the Women's March kind of arose, and that gave us the idea to, um, well, not me personally, but it start March for Science started basically to encourage science, activism, science, communication, uh, and politics and science to be joint so that people, politicians were following scientifically sound policy. Um, and this is really you know sprung initially from climate change where the the politicians in power weren't paying attention to climate change and weren't doing you know you know pulled out of the paris accords etc um and it's it's since sprung up into lots of other different areas so right now we're really involved in um, communication about the pandemic, and we do a lot of encouraging and supporting grassroots organizations. So for example, a couple of days ago, I interviewed a man who, uh, a physician at a hospital in Boston who is working on this, uh, this project that he helps other physicians Uh, register people, register their patients to vote while they're at the hospital, and it's this really cool thing. It's so easy to register and it helps these patients who are spending time at hospitals otherwise to register while they're there. And so we do a lot of uh, amplifying their voices. We reach out to politicians and, you know, do a lot of policy stuff on the back end. I do less with the organizing. My role is generally, I write for them. So I've written a couple of articles with them. We recently did one for Scientific American encouraging New York not to open so quickly. This was back in, I think it was July, when New York was considering reopening restaurants. Um, and we, we wrote an op-ed about why they shouldn't do that so quickly. And right now we're really, really working on getting people to vote and to vote for scientifically sound policy. Um, And yeah, so I do, you know, that's more of what I do. I do a lot of the writing and then I do a lot of um, explaining how to communicate with vaccine hesitant people or, you know, how to debunk XYZ myths or why are vaccines important in the first place and trying to get people excited about vaccination and more recently about masking and all of that, you know.
0: So you mentioned also earlier that you are affiliated with the Vaccine Confidence Project. Can you give me some more information about that for the audience?
1: Yeah, so they are a project run by um, Heidi Larson. She's an anthropologist who uh, they're based at university. Uh, what's it called at um, UCL University College London and Check me on that. But they're they're based in London and they have stations, they have, they have communication and do projects all over the world where they track confidence levels and myths and um and rumors as they grow in different countries. And then they they really look at the trends of what it is that is decreasing people's confidence in vaccination in different countries. So they recently, uh, two years ago or so, put out this really giant research project looking at worldwide confidence rates um, as part of a larger project. Um, But it was really insightful and they had information about, I wanna say 158 countries or something like that. Um, So anyway, I don't currently have a project with them because I'm a full-time student. But I do a lot of work with them where you know, I'll, I'll interview for you know a lot of the time they'll send me to reporters who are trying to you know, learn more about the what they do or learn more about vaccine hesitancy, or you know I direct them in in areas I'm kind of like their U.S. person so I see things happening in politics and you know we have so much happening in in the White House right now that really runs contrary to vaccine confidence. So you know I'll see something that's happening and I'll say, hey, heads up, this is something we should be tracking and we should be following because it's going to be big. And that's really what I do right now with them.
0: Last year, you were interviewed for a student voices article at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. And in that interview, you discussed your experience with online anti-vax propaganda mm-hmm. what prompted you to engage with the anti-vax community in this way and what advice would you give to pro-vaxxers who want to reach out oh so
1: that was early early in my um where into vaccine world and i started out more as just uh, you know how long can i engage these people before they boot me out i you know i stumbled into a particular anti-vax page on Facebook at one point where I saw somebody denying that vaccination helps eradicate smallpox. And I happened to at that very moment be reading a book about smallpox eradication. So I I started a conversation with this person and you know, I cited my sources and I said, oh well, you know what you're saying isn't necessarily accurate. Look, here is, you know, the data. This is exactly, you know, this person who wrote the book that I'm reading actually worked on the eradication effort and this is what actually happened. And I thought it was going pretty well. And then I found myself blocked. I was banned from the site, couldn't get back on. And so I started playing around and saying, okay, well, how long can I stay in these groups before I get banned? Um, and I got myself kicked out of a lot of groups, and it was a lot of trial and error. And I realized, you know, early, early on, that calling people names and saying you're a bad parent, you know, I didn't do that anyway. But and I'm careful of my image online. But a lot of people will say things like, you know, you're a bad parent. You must want your child to die, whatever. And that's not a kind of conversation. Anybody wants to continue. So I was playing around trying to figure out what are the best strategies for making my point while not being kicked out and it got to the point where you know I found a couple of groups that um, worked really well with my with my personal strategies. Um, I started uh, I joined a particular discussion group that I would ask a lot of questions about, kind of trying to get people to think about their biases and think about what is it exactly that you're afraid of? Or say, you know, have you ever considered that this might be the case? And, you know, asking them just to think about their, their views rather than telling them facts, because a lot of the time people aren't accessible to facts that are being thrown at them. And they might dig their heels in deeper, um, depending on where their initial information came from. A lot of the time, people just don't like to be told you're wrong. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of patience to get through to these people. But over time, if you start you know, questioning their, their most basic beliefs, um, you can kind of get to the point where they start to explore other truths will say you know the, the truth
0: the real the real science on social media as as we're both aware the predominant message from anti-vaxxers tends to be the shocking anecdote mm-hmm. that's the that's the front line of defense for the anti-vaxx position the shocking anecdote about the child who went and had vaccines um, often an Totally unrealistic number of vaccines at a completely unrealistic age. You know, my month-old child had nine vaccines, and and uh, she used to play the piano, and and you know, two weeks after that, she forgot how to play the piano, and now she's not a genius anymore. Um, there's there's a kind of thing that that crops up, and for whatever reason, they tend to have a very powerfully persuasive effect on people, uh, predominantly parents, obviously, because everyone's concerned about their child and and their welfare. And mothers especially, because from what I've been able to gather, mothers make up a substantial percentage, probably the majority of the anti-vax contingent. So out of abundance of caution, they are very careful about what procedures they allow their child to be subjected to, and they are often very concerned about the possible ramifications of these procedures. And as a result, these anecdotes tend to be disproportionately persuasive with a disproportionate number of people. And anti-vaxxers say that these stories should be accepted at face value because no parent would lie about this sort of situation, especially not such a serious situation involving their children. Now that's clearly an argument from emotion, which is a standard logical fallacy. But does it have some merit or is there at least some kind of, you know, a grain of truth to it? Would parents really make up lies about their children, especially if those lies were so easily debunked?
1: So I think there are a couple of things that we need to talk about. First is believe mothers, which is something that they say, believe all mothers. Um, Another thing is then your your standard anti-vaccine profiteer who's doing this strictly to make money. And then there are people who may not have a a strong scientific background or may, um, you know, they might be completely educated. They could have a PhD in English, but that's not the same as understanding science. And it's really, really difficult, even for someone like me. I have a lot of training in science and there is so much that I I avoid because I don't understand it. Like I have my go-to experts on things like the blood brain barrier. I'm like, okay, can you please explain this to me because I don't get it. So you're going to have a wide variety of reasons why people you know don't you know make up stories or whatever so anyway so the first group that the profiteers are going to be the ones who may or may not believe what they're saying I don't know maybe they do maybe they don't um maybe they've convinced themselves that what they're saying is true but they're doing it for money so then you have people like yeah I won't name names, I'll be good, but um, the man who runs this giant group that, you know, is one I track most frequently, who has GoFundMe pages, there have been articles about him, about how he made like $80,000 in a year based on donations from his people who follow him, and he spends it on personal things, I mean, he's a, he is a grifter through and through. And it's, you know, I've seen him post things like, sometimes I lie. He literally writes, I will lie to get blah, blah, blah. I've, I have the screenshot somewhere I use it on occasion to, to you know, make a point. And then he latches on to people who have these stories. There's a, a story of a woman who um, whose child died shortly after vaccination. This person, this man, got hold of her, convinced her that the vaccines were, were responsible for her child dying when after some investigation it was found that she was co-sleeping and her child suffocated but you know whether or not she believes it i think at this point she's so far down the rabbit hole of denial that she she does believe it's the vaccines but she is now become this man's you know target where he makes money off her she makes money off of her dead child she grifts she you know, she sells all of these products with her child's face on it and all of these lies about vaccination. she has billboards out it's really bad um, so those are some people who will make up lies for money that is indisputable then you have um, a subset of people who just don't know any better you know, people hear emotional stories and it's scary and if they don't know how to read the literature and no fault of theirs. It's really difficult to get through that stuff. They you know they might take the precautionary principle and say, it's not worth it to me. Look, we don't have a huge a huge you know, prevalence of measles in my home state. So why would I take a chance with a vaccine that might cause autism? And you know, first of all, vaccines don't cause autism. We know that. But the reason why there's no prevalence or there's a low prevalence of measles is because of vaccination. As we say, vaccines are a victim of their own success. Um, so, you know, they, their, their risk assessment is not always accurate and they think that they're doing what's best for their child when in reality, they are putting their child at risk um, and don't realize that sometimes there are outbreaks and if enough people don't vaccinate You're going to have more and more and more outbreaks and this is really a tragedy of the common situation where you know everybody thinks oh i'm just one person who's not going to do it but that becomes a whole community of people who don't do it which then becomes your tragedy
0: i can relate very strongly to what you said here because it's consistent with my experience debating anti-vaxxers online they love to present the false dichotomy either it's true or she's lying, and you wouldn't accuse her of lying, would you? I mean, after all, she's got no reason to lie, so you've got to accept that what she is saying is true. Now, there's obviously another option there that's being deliberately excluded. That is, she might be mistaken, honestly, genuinely mistaken, about what's happened to her child. The average parent is not medically trained, does not understand the interrelationships between vaccines and human bioprocessors and does not have a grounding in epidemiology or this kind of thing so it is entirely possible for a parent to be just naturally honestly genuinely mistaken about what's happened to their child of course they don't want to explore that option because you can use it as a crowbar to pry open their entire argument and and demonstrate just how weak the foundations are. But they don't want you also to, to do that because it allows them to maintain the emotional rhetoric that, that you are basically accusing this parent of lying about what happened to their child. That is a terrible thing. You are a terrible person for doing it. Therefore, I don't have to, to speak to you anymore. And your arguments are, are not legitimate.
1: I think two things I wanna talk about when I forgot to bring up before. yes. Yeah, so the believe all mothers argument. So you'll see a lot of people, mostly mothers, some fathers, but mostly mothers saying, why would, I, why would I lie? I saw this happen. So what I like to tell people is absolutely believe the parents when they say that something is not right with their child. You know your kid best. You know when they're acting funny or you know when their mood is different or when something is physically different about them. I get that. You know that better than anybody. However, you're also not trained in the medical science behind this, so what you think might be a vaccine injury, quote-unquote, is actually a really serious medical problem that needs to be addressed, and you might be missing it, and I think that happens most of the time. That's, you know, even if you take the bed-sharing situation that I talked about before, this, this kid suffocated because she was sharing a bed with her mother and you know whatever happened happens this mother is pushing the vaccine injury story and now she's getting other parents to not vaccinate on top of encouraging other people to bed share with their kid which is you know, the P- American Academy of Pediatrics or whoever. I'm not a pediatrician, but has found this extremely dangerous. And so a lot of the time they're missing these things. It could be a genetic anomaly. It could be a congenital heart defect. It could be any number of, you know, it could be a, a, a metabolic condition you're missing because you're, you're waving it off as a vaccine injury. And that puts your kid at significant more risk and could be really dangerous. So I've always said, work with the parents. Understand that they know best when their child is acting off, but they're not the people who should be making that diagnosis.
0: I, yes, I, I totally agree with that. Um, in fact, one of the infographics I, I made says, something might be wrong, you won't always know what it is. Parental intuition has its merits, but it's still no substitute for a professional diagnosis. And there I want to address the, I'm the parent I know best about my child. That really only goes so far. As you said, a parent will know when something is slightly off or or different, or the child really has departed from the the normal little rhythms and cycles that you become accustomed to as, as a parent, but it doesn't mean you know what's wrong. And that's of course where professional expertise is required. Also too, a, a lot of new parents actually don't have any experience with a child before because it's their first child. And if their child is only say a few weeks old or a few months old, that is a very limited range of experience to have with a newborn and you are not going to be fully in tune with a child until you have a bit more experience with it. And and it also depends on how well you've been paying attention and and how you've been rearing the child, how much time you spend with the child. And I know as, as a parent, the mood swings of a child, the cycles of a child, and feeding and sleeping, they can all vary considerably with an infant. In the first six months, you will have times when the child cries incessantly and is inconsolable no matter what you do, and it's just a thing that happens. It is very tempting for a, a, a new parent to say, I must blame an external factor or some kind of environmental factor that's causing this. I need to get to the bottom of it. And of course, vaccines are a, a common scapegoat because the timing of vaccines often coincides with some of these changes. And when people don't stop to consider that correlation is not causation, they can lead to some alarming and incorrect conclusions.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think a lot of people don't uh, don't realize that correlation doesn't equal causation, but it seems like such a perfect match that they don't think about it in any other way. Like, oh, my child stopped talking a day after they got the MMR, but they don't realize that you know a lot of developmental disabilities or, or um, you know, disorders end up really manifesting at the same exact mm-hmm. time as somebody would get the MMR. And it's completely coincidental but because the vaccine is not an everyday part of life, it's not something that you do on a day-to-day basis. It stands out as something that's totally, you know, this must be it because this is the difference that happened today.
0: To summarize what we've discussed, then, we've, we've got a variety of factors here. Firstly, most of the time, it, it can be safe to say that the parent is simply honestly mistaken about blaming a, a vaccine for whatever is going on with their child. Secondly, it may be that whatever is going on with their child is not actually a problem. It's just, you know, one of those funny little quirks that happen, like a, a child screaming and, and, and crying for a long time and being very difficult to settle over a few days. That is very common for, for a newborn. Then there are also the, the parents who do end up lying about what is going on with their child and what has happened and why. And that's a far more complex issue. We do know that it happens. It's been established multiple times that it's happened. You've got this example that you've raised. I'm familiar with the case you're, you're referring to. That was a, a case of the parent inadvertently contributing to the death of the child by co-sleeping. And this is where I think we get to another problem that when this happens, it can be very difficult for a parent to accept that this is what happened and that they Mm. had some part in it. Therefore, there is actually a very strong motivation for proceeding quickly to a state of denial and blaming some other factor so that for very obvious emotional and psychological reasons, a coping strategy is needed and this becomes an efficient coping strategy. And yeah, that is and I, well established. It's, it's something, you know, there are plenty of cases of this.
1: Yeah. And I think it's somewhat less common than someone just making a mistake, but I I've seen it happen a number of times. And I think that it it is something we should be aware of. There are going to be people who for whatever reason, you know, they need something to blame because they're not, you know, whatever actually happened, whether it was genetics and they, they feel bad that it's their personal genetics that contributed to this or something like the bed sharing situation, which was completely avoidable or whatever it is. They need a scapegoat and it's sad. Unfortunately, this is, you know, it ends up hurting other people. I think there are a lot of other people who really want to feel like they're going above and beyond as parents, and they feel like, you know, they, they see something that everybody else doesn't see in the dangers of vaccination, and, well, I am a better parent than you because I see this danger that you don't see, and I, therefore, am protecting my child in a way that you're not protecting yours. And I think a lot of people really latch on to that feeling of being special and being above and beyond where you know, we really need to be making it clear that you are being the best parent you can be by following the standard of care, which is to vaccinate.
0: There's definitely a, uh, a very aggressive purity test that tends to be applied to parents within the anti-vax community and and refusal to vaccinate is seen as you know, the ultimate expression of of that purity and if you deviate from that then of course you can come under scrutiny and and suspicion because people say well why are you vaccinating your child or why are you less hesitant about vaccines than, than i am you can't be the kind of parent you really should be and that, of course, plays very deeply into the guilt that all parents feel quite naturally when they're concerned that they are not doing the best for their child or they have done something or omitted to do something that has deleterious effects for their child. And again, it, especially with new parents who don't have the experience of, of raising a child before, this can be very terrifying and and play a a very strong part in persuading them against scientific and and medical advice. The other aspect, of course, is that there may not be a problem with the child, because very often what a parent will claim is a vaccine injury is not an injury at all. There may be nothing wrong with the child at all. The child just might be going through a a crying phase or not eating very well phase or not sleeping very well phase, which again, every new parent has experience with. And once you've got your second child, you know the kinds of things that are crop up and you are far better equipped to identify what's really going on and how to cope with it. But on occasions there is a genuine problem that lies with the parent. And, And that is something that used to be called, Munchausen's by proxy that I believe is now understood as factitious disorder, whereby the the person either deceives others by appearing to be sick and seeking medical treatment for a disorder that or, or disorders that don't exist, or by proxy convincing other people that a family member or, or someone they're caring for is sick and getting them subjected to medical procedures or processes and, and various forms of medical scrutiny, some of them highly invasive, that are completely unnecessary and in some cases have proved to be quite damaging to, to their health. And this is something that does actually happen and it happens with parents with very young children, babies, and and even sometimes teenagers and, and adult children. And that is obviously an, an area where we have another reason for saying, well, we need to be cautious about accepting these claims because we have to first check that they stand up to scrutiny. Is there a genuine problem with the child? Can it be identified medically diagnosed? Does it fit into what we know about science and medicine and the way the human body works? If it doesn't pass any of those tests, then we need to look a little deeper. And that does mean we have to start exercising scepticism about what is being claimed. And that is perfectly reasonable because that is the physician's job. The, yes. the physician's job is to, to get to the bottom of, of the issue, determine what it is and the best way to, to treat it. And this brings me to Bob Sears, who's uh, quite notorious as as saying oh, I'm pro-vaccine and my kids are vaccinated and I'm vaccinated. But he obviously recites all the the standard anti-vax tropes. He is the go-to doctor for anti-vaxxers. He tells them what they want to hear. And he's got various little rhetorical tricks for dancing on on the, the knife edge and, and saying one thing while actually doing another. And one thing Bob sees is... is has come out with is well because he was under investigation recently and he was placed on probation because he was handing out unwarranted vaccine exemptions Mm -hmm. and in his defense one of the things he said was I just listen to my patients and I believe what they tell me and if the parent tells me that their child has a a bad reaction to something or, or, or whatever then who am I to disbelieve them? That's part of my job is to believe my patient. Now, I'm not a medical professional. Even I can spot the logical problem there. It's not the doctor's job to simply believe everything the patient tells them. Mm -hmm. It's the doctor's job to listen to the patient and make a correct diagnosis based on what the patient tells them and any other forms of investigation that may be required. Would you like to chime in on on that as a I as a, as a medical student yourself?
1: Completely agree with everything you said. I think that what Doctor Doctor Bob Shears is doing is complete medical malpractice. And if that's your attitude, then why do you even have your medical degree? You're the one who has the degree to diagnose somebody, to to really go through all of their symptoms and figure out what's wrong. And if you're letting it go at, well, it must be a vaccine injury, you're not doing your job because 99 times out of 100 more, 999,000 times out of whatever, you know, it's it's not the vaccine, it's gonna be something else. And you're missing that and you're letting that get away when you really shouldn't. Um, Again, the parent's gonna know if something's wrong. If something happens after a vaccine, they're gonna know that something's up, but it's your job as a physician to dig into that and say, well, what is it that happened that day? Or, you know, a lot of the time these people will, one that I see all the time is the Tdap scream. They'll say their child got the Tdap and then screams for 48 hours or whatever it is. And first of all, certain vaccines hurt more than others. Nobody likes being pricked with a needle. So yeah, it's gonna hurt. And sometimes they're gonna be sore for a while and infants can't speak. So the way that they communicate when they're in pain is by screaming and that's a normal, normal reaction. But anyway, so they'll say, well, my child screamed for 48 hours. They had the Tdap scream. And a medical uh, professional's job is not to say, oh, you're right. I, you know, it's a vaccine. Their job is to either educate the parent on the normal development and say, well, that is a normal reaction for an infant, or to explore further and say, hmm, I wonder if there's something else going on. And, you know, every once in a while, there's going to be a vaccine reaction. And that's what, you know, we have systems in place to catch those. And that is a real thing. These things do happen on occasion, but it's so, so rare compared to what people actually think it might be. Yeah, it's it's frustrating. <laughs>